What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Things You Don't Hear in Church podcast. My name is Ethan. And my name is Derry. And joining us today, we have an amazing teacher. I believe he was a pastor at some point. He's been in the, in the ministry for 52 years. He's written a number of books mm. ranging from the kingdom of God to the four different interpretations of Revelation to the three views of hell. His name is Steve Gregg. I've heard him teach a number of weeks in our different schools here we, we have mm. in Honolulu. And he's an excellent resource for every question that you could possibly have. He has a radio show that he does every day where people call in and ask questions about Christianity or the Bible. And yeah, got saved in the Jesus movement back in the 70s and just devoted himself to knowing the Bible, knowing Jesus, yeah. and then sharing that with others. So joining us today is the famous Steve Gregg. <laughs> he's got tons of resources that probably could answer any question you have on thenarrowpath.com. That's also an app. You can find his books, his podcast, or his radio show, his sermons, everything mm -hmm. on there. I use it. Awesome. I use his podcast and his um, app on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Definitely one of my favorite resources to go to. So thank you, Steve Gray, for joining us. Today, we're going to be talking about annihilation. And um, that as a view of hell, as you guys know, we're mm -hmm. in a series on hell talking about the three views. And originally, we thought about having Steve Gray on as a Q&A. I think we still want to do that in a couple of weeks. But because he literally wrote the book on the three views of hell, we asked him to come on and also talk about annihilation and look yeah. at the historical background, the biblical background, and why it's a viable belief in mm. hell. So thank you, Steve Gregg, for being with us. Yeah, my, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I have a question. Yes. Have you read all of the books behind you? Not all of them. Not all of them. <laughs> There's a lot of them. A lot of them are reference books, so you don't you don't, nice, you don't nice. just sit and read through a dictionary or, or, right, an, right, right. or a lexicon. But right. uh, I've read many of them. Yeah, right. Awesome. I'm always I'm reading several. Josephus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I haven't read through all of it. Yeah, I, I haven't read all the works. Of, I have Josephus, and I've read much of it, but I, I haven't read yeah. all of it. It's not it's not all relevant to right, right. my concerns parts of it are definitely relevant to my concerns yeah. yeah i have a giant book of just like the complete works of josephus i think i'm never gonna read all of this <laughs> but i'll reference it at times when it's yeah. when it's important but he's a slow like, read he's a slow read because he's pretty yeah. cheating yeah yeah absolutely mm -hmm. makes me look smart though so yeah I like oh you got josephus wow <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah so in the intro of all the things that you've done in your time in ministry is there anything that i missed that you want to cover anything you want to share i mean there's other things i've done but that's not the, it's not all that important one thing is <laughs> here in youth with a mission i have taught for youth with a mission as an outsider because i'm not really a ywammer uh, but I've been teaching in uh, four schools in youth with mission since 1978, which I think is, if I'm figuring it right, it's like, what is that? Like 39 years or something like that? I don't know. No, not, it's something. Wow. It's a lot of years. But, yeah. 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 It's awesome. Close to 40. Plus 22, 54, or something like that. Yeah. 78, 78. Or 20, you have 20, sorry. You have 22 plus 22, so 44 years? Something like 40 something years, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or something close. Yeah, all I know is the, I know the Bible. I'm not good at math. math. Yeah. I know <laughs> my math. I don't yeah. know the Bible, not math. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, so I have smart, I have uh, math friends for that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. So yeah, let's get into it with um, Annihilation to, to kind of catch you up to where we are in the series. Last week, we had someone on who wrote a book 
about um, Total Restoration. His mm -hmm. name was George Saris. Saris, yeah. how do you say his last name? Um, yeah, he wrote a book called Heaven's Gates, Wider Than You Can... Heaven's Doors, yeah. Heaven's Doors, sorry. Wider Than You Thought. Ever could have imagined. Ever could have imagined. Yeah. I listened to the audiobook a while ago, but it was it was really insightful and really helpful to um, as an intro to what Total Restoration is. Mm -hmm. And so this week we want to explore what Annihilation is. Um, and so, yeah, like basically in layman's terms, how can we define annihilation for people who aren't familiar with it? All right. Well, let me say, first of all, that I'm going to be defending annihilation for awesome. on this podcast. Um, but I'm not necessarily committed to annihilationism. I, I wrote this book on three views of hell because I have studied all three. And I think they all have, they all have scripture in their favor. Hmm. The, the view I have come to believe is the least likely to be true is the traditional view. And so I'm now, I'm kind of wavering between uh, the view you discussed last time, which is universal reconciliation, and, and what we call conditional immortality, right. which is annihilationism. Now, mm -hmm. it's, so although I'm, I can defend this view, I can, uh, in another time, I could defend universal reconciliation just as much because I'm not really committed to either one. I know the strong arguments for each. I know the arguments against each. And, uh, and I just consider it's one of those things that God has not made as clear as I wish he had. But I don't really care that much because I don't plan to go to hell. And I, and I, and I really don't think, I don't even think the focus of our evangelism is supposed to be about hell. Absolutely, so, absolutely. So that, that's, so I'm not worried about what it is as long as it's just. And to my mind, uh, annihilationism, which is also called conditional immortality, is just. Uh, universal reconciliation is also just, in fact, more than just. Uh, but, uh, and God could do either. My main concern right. is about the, the character of God. If, if God's going to mm. keep people artificially alive forever just so he can torment them, that makes God out to be a certain kind of character that right. most, of us, most of us would call a monster. And, and the people who believe in that traditional view, uh, they do so with a certain amount of cognitive dissonance. They, they, they believe God's a God of love. And, uh, but they have to assume that humans are so utterly wicked that to torment them forever and ever and ever is simply the just thing to do by default, and that God is incredibly merciful to save any of us, whereas, uh, which gives the impression that, you know, God's default idea about man is that man's a horrible, corrupt, evil, uh, disgusting thing, and he just kind of holds his nose while he selects a few people to save. Uh, but in fact, the Bible indicates that God's default attitude towards sinners is love. God so yeah. loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He, he, uh, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So, so God is not, uh, by default, man's enemy or sinner's enemy. Uh, sinners make themselves enemies of God, to be sure. Mm. But Jesus was called the friend of sinners um, by people who didn't appreciate him being so friendly to sinners. And I believe that uh, you know, he came because he loves the world, including sinners. But he can't, uh, you know, he, some sinners don't love him back. And so there's going to be this consequence when they die. If they're not on good terms with God, there's something. But the idea that God would say, well, I loved you enough to die for you. But the moment you die, I hate you enough to torment you forever and ever. Uh, mm -hmm. Makes God seem a little schizophrenic. And, and the Bible doesn't support that as much as I thought for the first 35 or more years of my ministry. 
I thought the Bible did support it, but that's only because I knew a few proof texts, and the other views out there were considered by me to be more or less associated with cults. You know, the, right. what I'm going to talk about today was associated with groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists. Okay. Yeah, and, and the Universalist view was associated with New Age and you know, Unitarian mm. groups and things like that. So, yeah. so I never, I never gave any serious consideration to whether the Bible might teach one of these other views. Uh, you know, traditionally the church has taught for many, many years that eternal torment is what happens. And so I just kind of accept it by default. I did begin to research that uh, in the 80s. Uh, began to realize there is a biblical case for other views. I, I didn't change my view immediately, but I, I became aware that there's a respectable case. And you don't have to be, you know, aligned with any of the cults to take one of these other views or even be a liberal. You, the scripture itself can be appealed to. In the case of conditional immortality or annihilationism, the reason it's called conditional immortality is because it presumes that immortality is not the default state of anyone except God. It says, it says in 1 Timothy 6.16 that God alone possesses immortality. Now, by putting the word alone there, Paul is emphatic. No one has immortality except God. Mm -hmm. 1 Timothy 6.16, you said? Yep. 1 Timothy okay. 6.16. It says who, meaning it's either referring to God or Jesus. It's not entirely clear, but he says who alone mm -hmm. possesses immortality. Mm -hmm. And now the idea is that humans can be immortal only in him by, you mm -hmm. know, by, by yeah. sharing in his immortality. So it says in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, that God has given to us Christians eternal life. That's immortality. Mm -hmm. God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he that has the Son has life. He that does not have the Son of God does not have life. So eternal life belongs only to those who are in Jesus because he alone possesses it. And we become possessors of it by becoming part of his body. We become part of him. Uh, he includes us in himself. And so Paul has all these uh, things he rhapsodizes about when he talks about in Christ, we have all these things. And Ephesians is a good example. Paul talking about being in Christ in great detail. In Christ, we do have eternal life, uh, but he alone possesses it. We only possess it by being in him. So that like, right. like he's the vine and we're the branches. Well, the, the life that is in the vine in this case, Jesus' life is eternal. The life that is in the vine also is shared with the branches because they're part of the vine. They become organically part of it. And Jesus said, yeah. if, you remain, if you remain in me, you'll bear fruit. But if you don't remain in me, you'll be cast mm -hmm. forth as a branch. And what will happen? You'll wither and burn. You know, why? I thought I had eternal life. Yeah, you did. But you don't when you're not attached to the source of eternal life. The vine, right. Jesus, is eternal life. A branch of the vine has that eternal life. Someone who's not attached reverts back to not having it. So, yeah. so what's left? What's left for those who aren't in Christ? Well, to not have eternal life, to not be immortal, which means to not live forever. Now, mm -hmm. everyone's familiar with John three sixteen, which says that God loved so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. So, whoever believes in Jesus will be immortal, will have everlasting life. The others, apparently, will perish. The word perish, the Greek word means to be destroyed or be lost. But um, 
you know, and of course, destroyed is a little ambiguous. Hmm, right. Uh, you know, uh, people who believe in the eternal conscious torment will point out that to be destroyed doesn't mean you're annihilated necessarily, because Jesus said that the wine skin, old wine skins, if you put new wine in them, they'll be destroyed. Well, they're not right. annihilated; they still exist. They've just been ruined, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. So they would say that uh, to be destroyed or perish doesn't necessarily mean you're annihilated and don't exist anymore, but you're just ruined. Well, that's the that's the traditional explanation of that verse. However, mm -hmm. the Bible uses words like perish. It uses the word like die. It uses the word like um, uh, vanish away. I mean, when you read what the Bible said will happen to the wicked, they'll be consumed. You right. know, our God is a consuming fire. Mm -hmm. uh, there's there's a lot of words, not just the word perish, but a lot of words that are said to describe the fate of the unbeliever uh and those words all seem to point one direction and that is what god what god said to adam and eve the day you eat of that tree you will surely die mm -hmm. and i think a lot of i think a lot of people uh when they read genesis chapters one and two and three they assume that god is saying you are immortal now because i made you mm -hmm. immortal in my own image but if you sin I'm going to have to make sure you don't remain alive. I'm going to have to kill you. But mm -hmm. most people would say die there doesn't mean what we think of as die. Very commonly, when I was a traditionalist, I'd say, well, die, that just means separation. Death is just separation. Right. Mm -hmm. like, like physical death is separation of the soul from the body. So spiritual death is separation from God. It doesn't mean you're not conscious. It just means you're living somewhere else away from God. And away from God is horrible. So that's how the traditionalists talk about it. But I have to say, I've never found a dictionary or a lexicon of Greek or Hebrew that defines death as separation. Right. That is a, that's a theological convenience to say mm -hmm. death means separation. That way, we don't have to suggest that death means unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. um, now, death may or may not mean unconsciousness, but to Adam and Eve, who knew nothing, except consciousness to say you will die and then they eventually they did die um he didn't say uh but you'll really still live but somewhere else and uh, you'll wish you could die but you'll never be able to die because you're really immortal now the truth is that god alone possesses immortality humans right. do not not by nature mm -hmm. we do not and god put a tree in the garden of eden which Adam and Eve were allowed to eat called the tree of life. And it says in verse three, uh, chapter three of Genesis, uh, that if they eat of the tree of life, they'll live forever. Okay. Mm -hmm. But when they sinned, they were cut off from the tree of life. Hmm. God wouldn't let them eat of it. And so they didn't live forever. They, their natural mortality took them out. Hmm. It took a while. Mm -hmm. they, they aged and died, but, but they died because they were mortal. Uh, hmm. So we can say that by putting them in the garden with the tree of life, which if they did not sin, they could continue to eat of it. Mm -hmm. He made them potentially immortal, mm. dependent on eating that tree conditionally. Mm. But that's a conditional immortality. If they were cut off from that tree and therefore didn't eat of that tree, they wouldn't live forever. So mm. the idea of conditional immortality is the natural state of all people from birth 
is mortal. But huh. in the case of Adam and Eve, who were mortal, God gave them the potential uh, to meet the condition of immortality, which would be to, to eat perpetually from that tree. Now, I say to eat perpetually. I need to clarify why I'm saying that. Because the Bible in Genesis doesn't talk about eating perpetually of the tree of life. It just says yeah, if they put out and eat of the tree of life and live forever. You, know, you could interpret it that they just have to eat it once and they've got eternal life. But Interesting, yeah. But in Revelation 22, the tree of life is seen in the New Jerusalem, and it says it produces its fruit 12 times a year. Hmm. Now, if the tree of life is to be understood as a tree that if you eat it once, you live forever, you don't ever have to eat it again, why would it have to produce fruit 12 times a year? People just have to eat it once, and you'd never need it to bear fruit anymore. But you see, I think the fact that it's it fruit it fruits uh, twelve times a year means the impression is you you have to eat it, you know, repeatedly, regularly, and in that sense, mm -hmm. the tree of life is a type and a picture of Christ. Right, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, we have to continually eat of Christ. Well, we don't, right. We don't just accept him one time and then go out and do live our lives independently of him. No, mm, we live yeah. in him as we partake of Christ day by day. He is right. our life. He is our life. Wow. So, so as Adam and Eve were made mortal, but potentially immortal, if they could not be cut off from the tree of life, which their sins did cut them off from it, so they, their mortality took them out as it naturally would, we are all born mortal hmm. and will die. Uh, and, and this would mean in the ultimate sense, we will not live in heaven or hell, uh, you know, forever because we're not more immortal unless of course we're in christ and we're eating of christ as it were we're we're participating in him right and he, mm -hmm. he possesses immortality so that's that's the concept of conditional immortality that you we are not immortality is available in christ yeah yeah but it's not not experienced by those who are not in christ yeah hmm. i have a good question just about the uh Christ being that tree of life. Um, is it fair, would you say, to make the connection from when Jesus describes himself as um, the living water, the bread, and the vine, all pictures of that same tree? Yes. Yes, I think so, that he's the vine, we're the branches. Um, he's the living water. Whoever drinks of me, I think mm -hmm. drinks is in a, in a continuous sense, not just whoever just right. takes a step and then they're done. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst. Uh, when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in John chapter 6, of course, that's symbolic, but it is symbolic right. of eating him spiritually. Uh, he, he describes that elsewhere in the chapter as believing in him is eating his flesh, drinking his blood. But the point is, he's talking about eating regularly and drinking mm -hmm. regularly. He's not, he's not just saying, just eat once and you're good forever, hmm. you know. No, you right. eat Christ on a regular basis, so daily. He is your life. He is your yeah. He's the bread of life. Just like mm -hmm. you, have to, you have to eat regular food to keep your body alive, and you have to eat it again and keep eating it. Your mm -hmm. body needs to have continual nourishment. So spiritually, our spiritual life is sustained by continually eating Christ in the mm -hmm. sense that he's figuratively talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think something that really kind of sparked my interest in conditional immortality when I was thinking about it. And I know like parables aren't supposed to be taken hyper literally, but I always thought, I think that pictures that Jesus has used, uses are interesting because one of the things that stuck out to me when I was like 
first learning about this view and kind of thinking about it was that Jesus says like, oh yeah, the, they'll gather the wheat with the chaff and then be separated and the chaff will be burned up and destroyed. And then the wheat is used, right? And then I was thinking like, wow, it just says straight up that it'll be burned and destroyed. It doesn't say that, that and when you think about that picture, it's like, yeah, if you burn chaff, it's done. It's ash. Then you mm. throw it out and move on. And, and so on it goes like, well, here's, here's the thing. The Bible refers to the lake of fire in Revelation 20 as the second death, uh -huh. not a second life of torment. The dead are raised. They stand before the judgment of God. If they are condemned and their life, is, their name is not found in the book of life, they're cast in the lake of fire. And that's the second death. It's like they, they died first. They rose to stand judgment. Then they go to a second death. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't you know, it doesn't say that this is a living situation. Here's, here's the thing that we have to assume if the traditional view is true, that God really understated things throughout the Old Testament and the New. Because think about it, you've got Adam and Eve, and he's given them a dire warning, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, it'll be really bad for you. Well, what, how bad will it be? Well, you'll die. Okay. Well, but really, the traditional view says, well, that's not really what happened. That's just the beginning. When they die, they'll be alive forever and ever and ever and ever in torment. It's like being in one of Adolf Hitler's you know, death camps, uh, but you never, never have the chance to die. Uh, you have to be there forever and ever and ever. Now, if that were true, then God might well have been kinder to let them know, you know? Mm -hmm. A lot of people will take their chances and do something wrong if they think, well, what's the worst that can happen? I'll die and that'll be the end. Okay, I don't want that, but it's worth it to me, you know? But yeah. if they say, no, but but actually what God says, I'm not going to die. I'll live forever and wish I could die for millions and billions and trillions of years. And even that's just the beginning. You know, if, if that's really what people face when they die without Christ, if it's literally torment forever and ever and ever, it would have been actually merciful for God to warn people about that. But every time the Bible mentions what the penalty for sin is, it's always just a death. The wages of sin is death. That's New Testament. In the Old Testament, mm -hmm. the soul that sins, it shall die. Adam and Eve were told the day you do, you're going to die. Um, Revelation says the uh, lake of fire, that's the second death. Um, mm -hmm. You know, death, death is, a, is something most people will avoid. Uh, most people don't want to die, obviously. It's a motivator, but a lot more people would neglect, uh, would, would turn from sin if they really believed they don't have the luxury of dying. You know, they're going to have to yeah. live forever because they're naturally immortal, but they're not. They're not naturally immortal, according to scripture. Yeah. So what do you say to the objections when people would say, because I've gotten this myself, when people say, well, then people who, there, there's not really a true consequence then for sin because they just get to die. They just die and they don't answer and they don't exist. So they don't care. Yeah. There's two, two ways to look at that. One is the consequence is they forfeit the, the opportunity to be mm -hmm. children of God, to live forever in a perfect world and reign with Christ. I mean, these things are not, you know, a lot of Christians aren't, it's not so much that they love Christ. They just don't want to go to hell. You know, right. If people love Christ, They'll, they'll pity anyone who misses out on him, even right. if 
even if those people who miss out on them don't have any other consequence than that. Frankly, to miss out on what you were made for, the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate purpose that God made humans for, which has got to be the most fulfilling thing human beings can ever experience. Right. To, to have the opportunity for that and miss it is not with, is not a non-consequential. That's that's a huge yeah. difference. Now, that's one mm -hmm. way to look at it, and that would be, in fact, true if that's all there is to it. But there are suggestions in the Bible that the punishment of sinners will be proportionate, not necessarily infinite, but proportionate. That is to say, Jesus said that servant who knew his master's will hmm. and did not prepare himself and did not do the things that his master commanded will be beaten with many stripes. Yeah. But he said that servant who did not know his master's will and did things worthy of stripes will be beaten with few stripes. Right. So he's talking about disobedient people being punished proportionately, not, not all the same. Jesus also said when he's condemning uh, Capernaum and some of the cities that had rejected him, he says, it'll be more tolerable for you for in the day of judgment, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Now, I don't think he's saying Sodom and Gomorrah are going to have an easy, easy uh, judgment, but he's right. saying theirs will be easier than yours. It'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment for them than for you, which suggests, again, uh, proportionate punishment. He's saying, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah didn't have the advantage of seeing the miracles that, that Capernaum mm. saw. And so, I mean, the fact that Sodom and Gomorrah were bad and unbelieving, they, well, they, their punishment is due them, but Capernaum has worse punishment due because they had miracles, they saw Christ, they rejected yeah. that. So mm -hmm. the, point, the point is there are different degrees of culpability even among those who are lost, and therefore apparently different degrees of, of uh, penalty. Now, that may be, uh, and no one really knows for sure, but it may well be what that means is that there will be longer periods of punishment before annihilation for different people. Right. Because God, God can keep people alive enough to make sure they, they serve their term. But, then, but it just won't be forever. Because frankly, almost all thinking people agree that no matter how many sins you commit, no matter how many years you commit them, you don't deserve infinite punishment right. because you your sins were finite. Right. right. They were not infinite. And therefore, justice is not served if finite sins are punished infinitely. infinitely. That's what yeah. eternity would be. Now, I will, I'll give you the counter argument for that from the traditional side. The, the, they would say, well, hold it there. Who says our sins are finite? They say sins against an infinite God mm -hmm. are infinite in magnitude. Mm -hmm. so, so they would say, uh, you know, it's, it's not so much how long you sin, like 70 or 80 years, that determines how how terrible your sins are because some of the very worst crimes could be committed in a split second and mm -hmm. some lesser and like murder you know whereas a lesser crime could be committed taking time you know weeks to plan out in other mm -hmm. words the length of time you're involved in the sin does not determine how bad the sin is or how much punishment deserves that's that's the traditional argument back but mm -hmm. here's the argument back against that and that is that okay if it is true that every sin we commit is 
infinitely uh, culpable because it's against an infinite God, mm -hmm. then there can be no degrees of punishment at all. Right. Right. Because yeah. everyone sins against an infinite God. And if, yeah. if so, I mean, you can't really have degrees of punishment like, like Jesus talked about. And even most traditionalists believe in degrees of punishment. They just believe, right. they believe right. that hell will be forever, but they think the fire will be a little cooler for some than for others, you know, or, or hotter mm -hmm. for others, some than others. But you can't really have proportionate guilt if the slightest sin, which is a sin against infinite God, is therefore an infinite sin. Then Adolf Hitler is no worse than than a a, a nice uh, you know let's just say someone like Mother Teresa if she had not believed in Christ you know I mean right. yeah. who lives a very good life but doesn't believe in Christ I believe Mother Teresa is a Christian and is in heaven but but <laughs> I mean but if somebody was like her but didn't believe in Christ let's say they did it because they were a Hindu you know mm -hmm. um, or humanist. Well, okay, according to the traditional view, she's going to go to hell and suffer just as long as Adolf Hitler's going to suffer. Right. The choices in her life were entirely different choices. So here's the thing. You can't, the Bible doesn't say that everyone will receive a penalty according to the magnitude of the person's hurt by their crimes. Hmm. But they'll receive the penalty of their actual deeds, you know? Hmm. And um, and obviously not all deeds are equally uh, equally culpable. I mean, when you look at the law of Moses, where we are told many times in the Bible that it's a, a, a righteous and just code. Even Paul in Romans seven said the law is holy and just and good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, the law prescribed penalties for different crimes. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. if you steal a lamb, you have to return four lambs. If you steal an ox, a bigger crime. You have to return five oxen. If you cut a man's hand off, well, you've got to have your hand cut off. If you kill a man, well, you got to be killed. You know, in other words, different crimes have different penalties because not all, not all sins are really equal. They are all, e even the least of them is enough to condemn a man. You know, I mean, in other words, I'm not saying, oh, some people just don't really deserve condemnation at all. Well, the, the least, the least sin is rebellion against God deserves mm, condemnation. Yeah. yeah, but it doesn't it doesn't deserve the same thing as a person mm -hmm. who's lived his life in hatred of God and hatred of his fellow man. Um, so so the some annihilationists say, and not all do. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses do not say this, but Seventh-day Adventists do. Hmm. And I'm I'm neither. <laughs> but Seventh-day Adventists will say uh, annihilation is the final end of the sinner, but it's not instantaneous. At the judgment, each one is handed down the just penalty for his crimes and is punished proportionately and then annihilated so no one is getting away with anything with this view you know the the only way one could say well no one's everyone's getting away with their sins is to suggest that the proportionate punishment they receive before they're annihilated uh, is much too merciful and they really deserve to be tormented forever and ever mm. but you know, if if somebody robs a bank and they get 20 years in prison and they get out, can someone say they got away with their crime? I don't think so. Just because their crime's not eternal, just, I mean, their punishment's right. eternal, just because they have an end to it at some point, that doesn't mean they got away with anything. They they served their time. They, they were punished. Hmm. Yeah. 
Um, do you have anything else on that before? Our, okay. No. Um, going back to uh, the thing we were talking about before this, where you said you were talking about death, right? And all of sin leading to death, uh, not necessarily eternal. Um, what would you say? And we covered this a little bit on the last podcast. Would you say when someone, if they were to respond to you and say, well, the Bible says um, that it's eternal fire, like over and over, it talks about an eternal fire they go to, not just like a death. What would you say if someone would respond and say that? Well, uh, the term eternal fire, I think, is used once. And that's, I believe, in Matthew 25, 41, where it says that the, the sheep and the goats, the goats are sent to eternal fire. Hmm. Um, and, and then later in the, in the parable, in verse 46, it says these go away into eternal punishment. Hmm. Um, now, there are other references that talk about unquenchable fire. Okay, yeah. And that's a different concept, really. Hmm. Okay, let me first talk about unquenchable fire. The term unquenchable fire is found many times in Jeremiah where it's not talking about the afterlife. It's talking about how God is furious toward the Jews mm. for the idolatry. And he's going to bring the Babylonians in to do horrible things in destroying them and, and killing them and taking them into captivity. And he says, this is my wrath that burns like a fire and no one can quench it. Okay, this is un, uh, this, my wrath is a fire that no one can quench. Now, now, no one can quench it means no one can put it out. It doesn't mean that it's eternal. Uh, all major forest fires would be unquenchable if we don't have modern firefighting equipment. No one can quench them, but they will burn out eventually once they burned up all their, all their fuel. You know, I mean, something that's to, the word quench means to snuff it out or to put it out. And if, if no one can quench it, as as and this is a, a phrase that Jeremiah uses a lot, and other other Old Testament prophets do too. That God's wrath is a fire that no one can quench. It means that if God is angry, you can't stop him. You can't, you know, if he's gonna, if he's gonna send his wrath, there's no way you're gonna thwart that. You know, no way you're gonna escape that. Okay. But it's not talking about wrath that goes forever, because frankly, uh that wrath that Jeremiah was talking about ended. And 70 years later, the Jews were brought back from Babylon and you know they weren't punished anymore after that. So uh so unquenchable fire doesn't have the same meaning as eternal fire. Now, I mentioned there is the reference to eternal fire. The word eternal in Greek is ionios, which is uh, a, an adjective built on the noun ion. Right. Ion means age. Ion is the Greek word for an age. Ionios is simply taking the word age and making an adjective of it, right. which either means it either means it lasts for an age or it pertains to an age. It's, it's, a, it's a related to an age, but it's not entirely clear. A lot of scholars think it just means it lasts a really long time, uh, in, up to and maybe including forever, but it's just you know an age. But hmm. others think, and, and some very important uh, evangelical scholars in their works, including F.F. F. Bruce, have suggested that Ionius might mean not lasting for an age, but pertaining to an age, namely the, the age of the Messiah. So that when Jesus talks about Ionius life or eternal life and Ionius punishment or Ionius fire, that it means the fire and the punishment and the life, respectively, that pertain to the age of the Messiah. The Jews believed in two ages primarily, this age and the age to come. Right. The, what they called this age was the age before the Messiah, 
and the age to come was the Messiah's age, the kingdom he would establish when he comes. The Jews spoke this way. And so if, if Ionius means pertaining to the age, namely the age of the Messiah, then the judgment is a judgment that pertains to that age without any reference to how long it lasts. Uh, likewise, the life is the life of the age of the Messiah. It's a different kind of life. It's not talking about its length. Now, we know that Ionius' life is endless because there's other words like immortal that are used. Right. You know? But the word Ionius itself does not necessarily mean eternal. And every lexicon you look in, <clears throat> which gives the meanings of uh, Ionius, uh, well, I think most of them will give the word eternal as one of the definitions. Right. But then they'll say, then they'll say, uh, uh, another definition is lasting a long time. Mm -hmm. it, the truth is, in the Old Testament, the word eternal is the word olam, mm -hmm. and in the New Testament, in the New Testament, it's ionius. Now, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, olam was was translated as ionius. So we know that the New Testament Greek word ionius is equivalent to the Hebrew Old Testament word olam. Both are often translated eternal not always but often and uh, and that when you find the word eternal or everlasting applied to life or punishment or fire or anything like that or god it's always the word in the old testament olam and in the new testament it's generally ionius now the reason i say that is this olam as all the lexicons will tell you means um beyond the vanishing point hidden something that is so far off you cannot see the end from now. It's like gone over the horizon. You can't quite see the end of it. It's, it's very far off. And it could be forward or backward, very far off. And, and if, if you look at the way this word is used in the Old Testament, it refers to many things that are not at all eternally distant, but just very far off. It's, it, now, something that is eternally distant, something that goes on forever, that would also be olam, because you can't see the end of that either. So olam, elam can mean something like the, the, the everlasting God. Well, of course, he's, he's endless. Uh, something that there's olam can, in fact, be endless, but the word olam itself doesn't necessarily have that meaning. It means long-lasting, age-enduring age or whatever. So it's kind of dependent on the subject of whatever it's talking about then. Right. And, and, and therefore, the word ionius in the New Testament has the same kind of usage. So... Hmm. Uh, when, when Jesus talks about Ionius life, he could be talking about eternal life in the sense that we think of it, unending. The word can be used to apply to such, but it doesn't, it doesn't always mean that. But we know that eternal life is unending because of the word used elsewhere, immortal or immortality. Mm. Gotcha. <clears throat> but, but when it comes to many other things, it's not clear whether it's eternal or not. And now eternal fire might be simply the fire of the age, the fire that pertains to the age, or it might be a very long lasting fire. But listen, when you throw something into fire, to know how long that fire will burn doesn't tell you how long that thing will burn. Hmm. Fire can, you know, you can have fires that you keep burning for days, but when you throw your trash in there, your trash isn't your paper trashes are not going to burn for days. Right. You know, I mean, the fire might last forever, uh, perhaps, but what's thrown into it is not predicted to last forever. Now, we are told that the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and he's tormented day and night. 
you know, forever and ever. But that may be because the devil isn't made of stuff that burns up. You know, mm. people, people might be, uh, you know, consumable. Uh, you know, if I have an incinerator in my backyard, which people don't anymore, but we did when I was a kid, you throw your trash in there. Suppose my trash contained, you know, some trash, you know, scrap paper and cardboard and, and some old tin cans and things like that. Uh, and maybe, you know, the kids threw a couple rocks in there too. Well, all of these are thrown into this, all, all these things are thrown into the same fire. Mm -hmm. but, but you'll find that the paper has been totally consumed. The, yeah. can, the cans have been, we might say, purified. You know, they've been sanitized. The rocks remain unchanged, but they've all been the same fire. So to say, you know, you're going to go into eternal fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels, which is what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41. Well, okay, the, the devil and his angels are going into eternal fire. Uh, the sinner's going into that same fire. But will the sinner last in that fire as long as the devil and his angels do? Hmm. We don't know. We don't know. I mean, we're not told. But it'd be kind of impossible to assume it because hmm. not everything not everything lasts the same in fire as everything else. Some things might not be might not be burnable. Satan himself and the angels might not be uh, consumable fuel, but people might be. We don't know. Uh, all I'm saying is when people talk about, you know, eternal fire, it's not clear whether people thrown into that eternal fire are themselves eternal. You know, mm, the, fire yeah. may, the fire may be without the trash being. Hmm. For sure. Yeah. So moving on then the subject, what is the historical background of the topic of conditional immortality? Because I, I think it's kind of funny that we call eternal conscious torment, the traditional view, right. because to my understanding, annihilation, eternal or, or and uh, total restoration kind of go back a little bit farther than eternal conscious torment. Is that correct? Well, kind, kind yes and no. I mean, they, they, all three views were held in very early times. We don't mm -hmm. know exactly what the apostles taught because it's their writings that every group is interpreting differently. You know, right. we, have, yeah. <laughs> we have their writings but each of the three groups interprets those same writings in different ways. So, so we could say, well, the apostles taught it. Well, they, they made statements upon which all three of these views have based their, their views. So how, you know, how soon do we have actually differentiation of these views? Well, at least in the third century, early third century, uh, and, and, and before, even the late second century, all three views existed. Uh, Tertullian, for example, taught the eternal conscious torment view uh, very early on. Uh, Origen, who was around the same time, and his teacher Clement of Alexandria taught universalism. That is, they, they taught that hell is a place of rehab, that people are purified in hell and eventually repent and come to Christ and are saved. Uh, Irenaeus, at around the same time, was teaching uh, conditional immortality. Hmm. Irenaeus made many statements about how people who do not believe in Jesus, the, his, this is his wording, will be deprived of eternal existence. Interesting. So, okay, so, so Irenaeus believed that people who are not saved are deprived of eternal existence, which means they're mortal, you know, and they don't, they don't oh, continue yeah. 
So you've got all three of these views very early in the church. Now, frankly, Tertullian, Origen, Irenaeus, all of them were of equal stature as far as you know, respectable scholars. Actually, Origen, who taught the universal reconciliation, he was the most respectable of them all right. because his, his views influenced the church uh, for more than any other teacher for at least 150 years or more. Now, what happened is Augustine, uh, when he was converted, he wrote tons of books. And he be, Augustine was a, a theologian and a monk uh, of North Africa who wrote tons of books and was quite brilliant. And um, he, he influenced Christian theology more than any other man right. in history, in history. Um, in the Western Church. Now, by the way, the Eastern Church never got into Augustine, but but the Roman Catholic <laughs> Church. Uh, yeah. Augustine is considered to be the father of Roman Catholicism and the father of the Reformation. Mm -hmm. Because the Reformation and its Calvinism was from Augustine. And the, the Roman Catholic Church with its uh, structures and papacy and so forth were uh, basically grew out of Augustine's writings. But mm -hmm. Augustine also wrote about hell. Now, he wrote about 17 chapters, I think it was, in his book, The City of God, uh, about hell. And he spent the whole time trying to refute Origen, who apparently was the man who had to be beat. You know, it was apparently Origen was the most influential. There were, before Augustine's times, there were six schools, Christian uh, you know, ministry schools in the Mediterranean world. Four of them taught Origen's views of universal wow. reconciliation. One of them taught Irenaeus's views of conditional mortality, and one taught Tertullian's views of eternal torment. So hmm. now the interesting thing is before Augustine's time, these three all existed. It's obvious that Origen's views were the most influential for a long time. Therefore, the church was probably almost primarily uh, universalistic in its hmm. theology. But and what, uh, what age is this? What date? This is up to well, Augustine was in the in the three hundreds. Right. Um, Origen was about one hundred fifty years before that. Uh, in the, wow. yeah, in the, and and uh, likewise, uh, Irenaeus was um, a little. Irenaeus was around one seventy one eighty. He his writings were done. Tertullian, I forget his exact dates, but it's in the same general period. Generally, we're right. talking about late second century early right. third century so the late 100s and the early 200s you've got all three views and they're they're not only tolerated but uh you know nobody seems to call anyone else a heretic for having a different view on this it was i right. think just i think it was understood the bible's not all that clear and you know some people interpret that way some this way and some not, and and that was okay you know there were quite irenaeus wrote uh works called against heresies and he wrote against, I forget, 30-something heresies in his day, and he never mentioned universalism or, etern or eternal conscious torment as heresies. Wow. Now he, and, and yet, Origen and Tertullian were teaching those other views, and Irenaeus knew that. But, right. but nobody was looking at the other guy saying, you, your view is heresy, your view is heresy. It's like a person's view of hell was considered not to be determinative of their orthodoxy. But then comes Augustine. And Augustine in the mid 300s and early 400s, he decided to champion Tertullian's view, which is eternal conscious torment. And he wrote 
as I said, several chapters in his book uh, on hell, uh, basically supporting Tertullian and arguing against Origen. It's interesting he didn't argue against Irenaeus, but I mean, the fact that he uh, argued almost entirely against Origen means in his day, Origen's views must have been the dominant views that he had to overthrow, he thought, right. you know? So I, 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 there's a good case that uh, universal reconciliation, origins views, was the dominant view in the church before Augustine. But we can't prove that. All we know is, like I said, four of the six schools taught origins views, right? and you know, one one each taught the other two. But right. uh, Augustine did not call origin a heretic either. He just he just said that those who follow origin are tender-hearted Christians who have a hard time with the severe language of scripture and he said they he said they don't reject the bible but they just have a hard time with the hard sayings and then he went to defend the hardest view of all which was tertullian's now because of augustine's influence in the western church yeah. which became the roman catholic church uh that view became the traditional view of the western church now, eventually, most churches uh, around the world apparently tended to accept it too, but none was as committed to it as the Western Church. For example, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they never followed uh, origins. Uh, excuse me, they never followed Augustine's views. They, and uh, they didn't necessarily follow origins, but they never condemned him. The Western Church later condemned origins' views. The Eastern Church didn't do that. And, and there were some of the great Eastern Church leaders who were following origins views there must have been some also who held uh you know Irenaeus's views but the point is that until Augustine all three views were kosher you know you, the, a Christian could hold any of them no one would criticize them for it but after Augustine it became clear the popes the catholic church began to standardize you know the the one view they held which was Augustine's and the, therefore, we call it the traditional view. Those of us of the Western Church, you know, those of us who are either of Roman Catholic or Protestant um, background, were Western Christians. Uh, you see, the Eastern Church never had a Reformation, so only the Western right. Church. So uh, the interesting thing is that Augustine is the chief influence on the theology of both the Roman Catholic and the Protestant churches, and therefore his view of hell has simply been passed along and become what we call the traditional view. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, cool. Do you have uh, any yeah. Um, I know this is very broad, and we don't have to go through it if you don't want to. But if you had to give the strongest argument, you would say, in your opinion, for um, conditional immortality, what would you say it is? And as as like the best argument against the two other views? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. We may have already talked about it. But. Sure. Um, well, there are some, there are a few scriptures that certainly make it sound like, well, frankly, there's not many scriptures that support uh, the idea of an eternal conscious torment. There's like mm -hmm. an handful, if that, right. about, about five verses in the Bible that might sound like they support eternal conscious torment. There's a lot of verses, I believe, that seem to support conditional immortality, and there's a lot that seem to support the universal reconciliation view. I feel like there's mm -hmm. It's comparable, uh, but of the uh, conditional immortality, uh, like I said, the lake of fire is referred to as the second death, hmm. uh, not the, the second 
prison term or the second life of misery, but it's the second death, which doesn't necessarily prove that that's annihilation, but it kind of, it just gives that impression. I mean, if we didn't, if we didn't have one of the other views in, in our minds as options, we'd certainly get the impression that, that means the same thing as when God said, the day you eat of it, you're going to die, or the wages right. is death. Yeah, so right. we, we, because of the influence of the traditional view, we have found ways to think of death as not really the way people naturally think of death, mm. this eternal living separation from God. But, and, but without any biblical basis or any lexical basis for seeing the word death that way, I think the natural way to be would be uh, would, would make it seem to be the cessation of consciousness, right, or the absence of life. You know, uh, the uh -huh. absence of conscious life. Now, there's more. I mean, Jesus said uh, in in uh, Matthew 10, I think it's verse 27. Do not fear those who can destroy the body or kill the body and can do nothing more, but fear him who can, after he's killed the body, can destroy the soul in mm, Gehenna. Yeah. You know, so destroy the soul after the body's killed. Once again, the word destroyed just barely could be understood to mean just kind of ruin rather than annihilation. But destruction of the soul uh, is sounds like, you know, the soul is burned up or whatever. Right. The Very Bible, the, the idea that no one possesses immortality, and the Bible does declare that, except those who are in Christ, makes it seem impossible that sinners would eternally live and, and suffer torment forever and ever. Hmm. Now, of course, that doesn't rule out. You could, you could believe in conditional immortality, which I, I frankly, conditional immortality, I think, is a, a concept in itself, mm -hmm. I think is unmistakable biblically. It doesn't have to lead to annihilation, though. Gotcha. Because, gotcha. because even if we're not immortal, God could keep people alive in hell long enough until they repent, in which case yeah. they would receive immortality the same as we have in this lifetime. And Interesting. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, you could believe, and as I mentioned before, I'm not sure what I believe, but you could believe that immortality is conditional, but that there's still such a thing as soul survival until, until God feels you've had a sufficient chance to repent you know hell or whatever so that would go with the or origins view um so i mean it's the fact that the bible doesn't specifically say people have a choice again after death would be an important point you see the uh, universal reconciliation view holds that uh, certainly not everyone's going to get saved in this life the question is, do they still have hope after this life? Once, mm -hmm. once you've been condemned at the great, great white throne and put in the lake of fire, is it possible that God uses the lake of fire to purge you, to mm -hmm. discipline you, to bring you around, to, to uh, change your mind so that you do repent? You know. So, I mean, everyone who gets saved in that system still has to repent. They still have to believe in Jesus. It's just that those who go to hell, have, you know, they take a little longer and have to suffer more than the average person before they've done it. Um, but the thing is, there's nothing in the Bible that specifically says that a person can repent after they die. Now, I have to say this, there's nothing in the Bible that says they can't. 
The Bible right. simply yeah. the Bible is simply silent on the question of whether people after they die have the opportunity to repent. And therefore we you know we don't we'd almost be thrown back on some larger principle to have to decide between the two like mm. maybe the character of God, you know? Right. And the difference between those who would believe in uh, universal reconciliation and those who believe in one of the other views is that those who believe in universal reconciliation would emphasize in the character of God, his love for sinners, his mercy, his willingness that any should perish, that, those aspects of his character. Whereas those who would believe in annihilation or eternal torment would be focusing more on, well, yeah, he's got that, but, but he's also a just God. You know, he's also he has to he has to punish sin you know that's justice and you can't you can't just focus on his love and mercy and and rule out his justice is that what they would say so you know in my book on the three views it of course it went quite deep into each of the views and the, and the arguments for each and, for, and against each but really i saw the book and i try to make it clear in the book as primarily an exploration of the character of god hmm. because Perfect, yeah. hell Whatever hell is, is what God wants it to be. Hmm. God, nobody forced God to make hell anything. God, nobody forced God to do anything when he created. He created what he wanted. And he said yeah. it's very good. What, when God created everything, he, it was very good in his sight. He didn't, he didn't, his hand was not forced uh, to, to make hell, for example, to be something that he would not like it to be. Uh, he, he, he made everything he made for a purpose, and hell is made for a purpose, too. So the question then becomes, well, what is the purpose of hell? Mm -hmm. Well, if, if the universal reconciliation view is true, the purpose of hell is to rehabilitate, to purify, to bring people to repentance, just like the fiery trials of this life are intended for that purpose. But if annihilation is true, then the purpose of hell is simply to get rid of sin once and for all and, and incorrigible people who will never repent. I've just got to be put out of existence because there's going to be no place in eternity in God's universe for continual rebellion, you know? And it's like putting down old Yeller when he gets rabies. You know, you don't hate him, hmm. you know? You, you, you don't hate the dog. You just, uh, he's dangerous. Got sickness. He, yeah. He, he can't be cured. He can't be cured. You just got to put him down. You, you do it with a tear uh -huh. in your eye, but you do it. And then, but then those who believe in eternal torment think the purpose of hell is simply to for God to, uh, you know, pour out his unmitigated anger and hatred towards sinners forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, obviously, the character of God in these different views is quite distinct. A God who wants to punish his enemies forever and ever is not very much like what Jesus told us to be. Jesus told us to love our enemies and bless those who curse us. And do good to those who persecute us. But, and he said, so you'll be like your father. But the traditional view suggests, well, the father's not really like that at all. Yeah, he'll be, he'll play nice until you die. But if you don't get it right then, snooze, you lose, boy. His, his uh, implacable wrath is going to be poured out mm. and you'll never get over that. You know, that's going to be forever. Now, if God's like that, he's just not very much like, like we're supposed to be. He's not very much like Jesus was, because Jesus said about his murderers, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. I mean, Jesus was not a vindictive person. And yet this traditional view suggests God's a very vindictive person. He's holding off until the judgment. But after that, he's going to 
He won't hold back. He's going yeah. to never, never vent his wrath thoroughly because it'll never be vented. Now, you know, if, if there was a human being who had that attitude, I want my enemies to suffer, and I want them to suffer not for a few days, not for a few centuries, not even a few millennia. I want them to suffer for billions and billions of years. I don't want them to ever stop suffering. Now, a human being like that, there might be, exist people like that, but they're not very Christ-like, hmm. you know? And yet, the traditional view suggests that God is not very Christ-like. Now, the idea that God would annihilate those that can't be redeemed, those that won't repent, that's not, that's not unloving. I mean, God says, listen, I'm, I'm going to, I have some special privileges for those who love my son. Uh, those who don't love my son, they're just going to go into oblivion. You know, they won't exist anymore. That's not unloving. That's actually quite, it's just, and it's not unmerciful. The, the third view of universal reconciliation is the view that God is not only not vindictive, but he's determined. He's determined that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, he's, de he's determined that Christ is going to be the victor, that he's going to put every enemy under his feet, and that the ones who are resistant cannot resist forever. Hmm. You know, they may go to hell, but they even there, they can't resist forever, you know, because God is determined that everyone is going to belong to Christ. He's going to, as the universalists would say, you know, he's going to um, reconcile all things to himself. Right. Christ. Mm -hmm. So, frankly, that last view seems to fit God pretty good, too. As far as I'm concerned, annihilation fits the character of God reasonably well. It's just. It's fair. It's not unmerciful. Uh, it's just that the universalist view is uh, considerably more merciful. And the question is, how merciful is God? Um, now, yeah, in my book, I have uh, three sections, one, one where I present the traditional view, the arguments for it and the arguments against it in two chapters. Then the annihilationist view, two chapters, one chapter defending, one critiquing, and then the universalist view, two chapters, one defending, one critiquing. And the section on the traditional view, I say the, that section is called first the bad news, and then you get the traditional view. The second section is called the bad news is not as bad as you thought. And that's the annihilation view. Mm -hmm. And then the third view is the good news is better than you thought. And that's the universal view. So, uh, so I, I believe the question is how loving and how merciful do we dare believe God is? Um, and uh, some people say, well, if either of these views, annihilation or universalism, are true, then uh, people are going to take, take their chances and sin and not worry about punishment. But let's face it, almost no one in, in Western civilization has really become acquainted with annihilationism or universalism. And that means that all unbelievers think of hell as eternal torment. Yeah, and that that still doesn't make them stop sinning. Right. In fact, it makes it seem makes it seem like God's unfair and unloving, not very attractive. You know, I so. You know, I, some people think, oh, we, we dare not give up the traditional view of hell, even if it maybe doesn't have much biblical support, because then we lose that big stick we can use to convince people to become Christians. But frankly, that big stick has turned against us. There's yeah. almost nobody who's not a Christian takes hell seriously anyway these right. days.
And the ones who do think of it as this monstrous thing where this ogre kind of a god is just you know so angry at sinners. He doesn't love them. He hates them. And, uh, and, and he just unjustly punishes them far beyond what those poor saps you know, could, right. could defend themselves against or even could earn. So I, I think the character of God is the big issue here. Now, no, uh, annihilation, I think, is good for the character of God, and there's scriptures that seem to support it. I mean, it, everything that supports it can be answered by the other two views, but this is what I found out when I was writing the book. The, everything that supports the traditional view, those scriptures that it uses can be answered from the other two viewpoints. They, they can mm -hmm. use those scriptures too. Mm -hmm. Same thing with annihilation, same thing with the universal reconciliation. Actually, there's not one view that just is a slam dunk, in my opinion. I, and I've looked very openly, honestly, very open-mindedly at all the arguments. And I've been looking at them since the 80s. So how long has that been? You know? Yeah. 40 years, you know? And uh, and I've, I've read dozens of books on each view. So hmm. I have to say that I can't make up my mind, but the annihilationist view makes sense mm. but it's not the only view that does i mean there's there's mm. more than one view that could make sense and right. um, even if we're allowing the character of god to be the the arbiter of what view we take uh, both annihilation and universal reconciliation are, um, are favorable toward the loving character of god mm. Mm -hmm. usually when i hear someone respond to maybe a non-Christian or someone who's talking about hell from a more uh, like traditionalist um, view. They'll usually, they love to quote C.S. Lewis. And then I always love to say, you know, the, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. Locked on the inside, right? yeah. Uh -huh. Right. And that never, that never made sense to me necessarily. Because I would think, well, I'm burning and I obviously God is good now. I don't want to be here anymore. Right. Well, but yes, C.S. Lewis hated the doctrine of hell, but he, right, believed, right. But he believed it was taught in scripture. He had his own kind of modified view of hell. He 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 believed that the scripture taught eternal conscious torment, but um, I, he didn't believe the flames of hell were literal. You know his book, The Great yeah. Divorces, uh, where you get this uh, the door to hell thing, um, and also the problem of pain. I think it's in, I think it's in the problem of pain where Lewis said that the gates of hell are locked from the inside or outside, right. inside, inside. Yeah, and he. Uh, of course, what he meant by that is people can people in hell can leave anytime they want, but they're not the kind of people who want to leave, right? Uh, because leaving hell would mean they have to live with God, and they don't want God. That's right. why they're there, you know. So, but and I've heard I've heard a lot of people argue that way, uh, you know, that well, you know, even if the people in hell were given the chance to go to heaven, they wouldn't want to. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you know that? The Bible right. doesn't say that. If they'd, if they'd rather be in hell, how is it a punishment? You know, right. uh, if you get to be where you'd rather be, uh, then that doesn't seem really much like a punishment. So mm -hmm. I, I think that people say a lot of things to make themselves feel better about believing in the traditional view. Absolutely, yeah. But the truth is the traditional view has very, very small scriptural support. Mm -hmm. And what is said in scripture about the judgment of sinners either seems to talk about annihilation, death, destruction, perishing, all that, or might hold out some glimmer of hope that even those who are lost, God will never give up 
on trying to bring them back to Christ mm -hmm. because he's determined to reconcile all things to himself in Christ. And, um, you know, to, to my mind, it's, it's a toss up. But uh, as, a, as a father <clears throat> who has some children who are not, <clears throat> excuse me, who are not following the Lord at this point, some adult children, I, I certainly would hope for the universal reconciliation view, but I can't choose, I can't choose my uh, theology on the basis of wishful thinking, you know, and uh, a friend of mine who he thinks I'm a little too open to universalism, <laughs> he thinks I shouldn't be open to it at all. He says, I think maybe the fact that you've got unsaved kids has made you more open to universalism I, and affect your theology. I said, well, I think it probably has. And I'll tell you, if life experience doesn't open your eyes to things about God, then, then you're not learning. Because I remember right. when I had my first child, when I, when I first became a father uh, 49 years ago, um, I suddenly understood at a different level how God loves us because I had a child that I loved, you know? I didn't understand how God loves even rebels, but certainly his, you know, to love one's children is such a reflection of the love of God that that yeah. and al almost everyone I know who becomes a parent for the first time says, wow, I now understand God's love far more mm -hmm. because I have a child to love. But it wasn't until I had rebellious children that I realized how a father feels about his rebellious children. Wow. I, love I love them just as much. You see, yep. and, and Jesus said, if you earthly fathers being evil, love your kids and know how to give good things to them, how much more will your heavenly father who's not evil yeah. you know i mean if i can't imagine i'm more loving than god because god yeah. is god is love i'm not mm. uh, you know love is the fruit of the spirit and god is love but if if god loves my kids less than i do then i don't think he's the god that the bible describes and if he loves them as much as i do he will of course certainly be grieved if they have to be annihilated, but yeah. if I were in his position, and of course I'm not, I and if I had the position that, well, nobody's telling, no one can tell me I can't give my kids more chances, you know, after they die, if 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 God has the power to get more chances, and who would deny him that power, hmm. you know, uh, I know I would. I know any loving father would, if, if they have a children, they've been praying all their lives, they'd come to Christ or that they'd repent and they die without doing so. Any loving Christian parent would say, I'd love to extend their opportunities. And if God, who loves them more than I do and is not willing that any should perish, has that power, and of course he does, then it would seem, it would seem that that would be his preference. And who can tell God he can't do what he prefers? You know, yeah, so right. I mentioned earlier, there's the, the weakness of the universalist view is that there's nothing in the Bible that says that people have a chance to repent after death. Mm -hmm. There's also nothing in the Bible that says they don't. So mm -hmm. it's that it, we, we just don't know. Right. Um, there is, I, I'll bring this up because some people would, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man is tormented in Hades. And he's asking that water be brought across from paradise, from Abram's bosom to you know, relieve him. And Abram tells him, uh, there's this great gulf between us. No one can pass from where you are to where we are. 
or from where we are to you, where you are. And so in other words, that would be probably the strongest argument that people would make against say the universal view mm -hmm. because uh, universal suggests that people in hell may repent and come back. And Abraham's saying, no, no one can pass between these two places. There's a great gulf here. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, technically, that's not really talking about the lake of fire. Let's talk about Hades. The man, the man in Hades is not in the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment has not yet taken place. His five brothers are still walking around alive on the earth. Mm -hmm. They haven't died yet. So, I mean, this is just after he dies. He's in the, what we call the intermediate state right. before the final judgment. So, and in the final judgment, we read in Revelation 20, death and Hades are both thrown into the lake of fire. So yeah. although Hades is described as fiery, it's not the lake of fire. It itself will be thrown in the lake of fire. So what is true of Hades cannot be always assumed to be true of the lake of fire too. It may yeah. be. It may be that in the intermediate state, there's no opportunity to change, but who knows in eternity what God made a lot. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And I think something that's always good to keep in mind whenever discussing this with people, because it can be, I find a bit of a triggering or emotional topic, you know, for uh, people of different persuasions. Mm -hmm. Something that always keeps central, right? Is that like, as Christians, we all can come to the agreement that we don't want anyone to go to hell. Right. You know, and that Jesus is worth being with solely because he is Jesus. Yeah. And so I think as long as we center around that fact, we can have conversations for days and days and days and days yeah. and disagree. But as long as we're all on the same persuasion, you know, we all want people to love Jesus and Jesus alone is enough. Yeah. And when you decentralize that, then you decentralize hell. Like now evangelism is about, do you know Jesus? Do you want right. to get to know the guy who created you instead of, do you want to escape this thing? Like I'm being saved to something rather than from something. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Salvation is not about us escaping something. It's about Jesus getting what he paid for. Right. You know, yeah. and so the real question is not, some people say, well, if we don't have the really scary view of hell, although all views are quite scary of hell, I think, mm, yeah. but uh, if we don't have the very worst, then how do we preach the gospel? How do we persuade people? Well, we don't find the apostles using the threat of hell to, to persuade people. Mm, right. In the book of Acts, just read every one of their sermons, Peter's and Paul's evangelistic sermons, there are several of each, not one of them mentions heaven or hell. What they mention is Jesus. They mention that God has sent Jesus and has raised him from the dead, set him his right hand and made him king. That's the message. The message is that Jesus yeah. is Lord. You can submit to him or not submit to him. Now, what happens if you don't? Well, you can use your imagination about that. God does <laughs> not, you know? <laughs> yeah. And to that point, that, so when I was reading your book on, um, here, the guys who are listening on the podcast is a most recent book. I think it's the most recent one. It is the Empire of the Risen Sun. It's a two-part book. Um, changed my whole perspective and is in real time changing it as I continue to read it. One of your chapters, and like, I think conceptually I knew this, but I never zeroed in on, and like put words to it like you did, um, is this idea of like submission as salvation or salvation as submission is one of the chapter names. And it's this idea that like, you know, Jesus bought humanity. You already belong to him, whether or not you are aware mm -hmm. because he paid for your for your life mm -hmm. and that's where it's like okay now it's a problem you're not living for him not because 
hey, it's a good idea to follow Jesus and he's better for you. The idea is you're rightfully his. Mm-hmm. Like every single person is rightfully his. And so mm-hmm. that's the problem with rebellion is that like, oh, you are stealing in a sense. And it kind of changed my whole perspective on yeah. th- how I share the gospel when I, instead of saying like, hey, become a Christian because like, yes, God will save you from hell. And yes, he's really good. It's awesome. It's great. It's like, oh, you should become a Christian because you already are owned by someone mm-hmm. and you're not submitting to that someone. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the gospel message is about what Jesus, what God has made Jesus to be, the king, and what he deserves. So the, the message of the gospel is about Christ's divine rights. It's not about how to get away from your punishment. You know, that's not the message. The message is not, you better become a Christian or, or you'll be punished. It's rather, mm-hmm. you, you need to become a Christian or else you're cheating God. You're cheating mm-hmm. Jesus of what he purchased. You know, in other words, now, see, if you if you tell someone, accept Jesus or, or you'll go to hell, what you're appealing to is their self-interest. Yeah. And their self-interest, their self-interest is their sinfulness, which yeah. so they're, they're supposed to be saved from that, not saved by their self-interest, wow. saved from it. That when you when you preach the gospel as the apostles did, they proclaimed the lordship of Jesus, that he's the king, that everyone's supposed to submit to, then suddenly you're appealing to their conscience, not their self-interest. You know, yeah, when, Peter, wow. when Peter finished his first sermon in Acts chapter 2, he said, here's how he closed the sermon. Therefore, let all the house of Israel assuredly know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That means king. That was his message. He didn't give an altar call. He didn't say, you know, you're going to go to hell. No mention. There's no mention of the afterlife in his sermon. And they were smitten in their heart. Their consciences were smitten by the fact that they knew that if that is true, they are in the wrong. And mm-hmm. for people to be converted because they are concerned that they are in the wrong is going to make a different kind of convert than one who's mm-hmm. making the decision because it's good for them. Because they've done everything in their life for them. Mm-hmm. Everything's for them. They've learned how to manipulate the whole world and their family, their parents, their opposite sex, you know, their teachers for them it's been all about them and now they're learning mm. to okay i can i can manipulate god for me too i can i can mm. use god to get me out of jail you know out of hell that's not what the message is the message mm. is not about you it's about god what does he deserve that's really the yeah. question yeah i mean fantastic yeah i think a christian i think every christian should be asked this question if there in fact was no heaven or hell would you still serve jesus yeah wow yeah. that's yeah. powerful and that's like, that's an amazing question to ask and like consider ourselves. And I think it's a great place to kind of like transition to closing out because that's like a, a great place. Like, yeah, if heaven and hell didn't exist, what would we do? And I know we're come to the end of our time here that we have set aside. But before we let you go, we have to ask you one more question <laughs> oh, yeah. that we ask everyone who comes on our, on our show, or at least try to ask everyone. Yeah. So it's a hypothetical question. Say you're put in a gladiator arena with any realistic melee weapon present and past that you can think of, you get any weapon that's melee that you want. What is the largest predatory animal you can take down in a gladiator arena with a melee weapon of your choice? The Romans have put you in there. You got to fight it. And it's trying to kill you. Okay. So, so you're, you're the Christian being fed to the, the wild yes. beast. Okay. Yeah. Yes. But you get a weapon this time. Okay. <laughs> and you get to choose the beast. Uh, what's the biggest animal? 
or what's the best Predatory. weapon? What's well, the, yeah, what's the biggest? You to choose the, the animal and the weapon. Yeah, it has to be a predatory animal. For so example, what do you think is the biggest one. Yeah, for yeah. example, mine is I think I could take down a hyena with a small dagger slash sword, a big dagger, small sword. Hmm. So you want the you want the minimum or the what? The maximum. The, okay. Yeah. Well, I suppose a grizzly, a grizzly bear, and a bazooka. <laughs> i think that would be fair but but with a melee weapon so handheld yeah so something like a um maybe not a chainsaw because i think like motorized is kind of cheating a little bit yeah but like like a spear a sword javelin i tell you this is the honest answer and that is that all my life i thought the most wonderful way to die would be as a martyr and nice. for christ because you got to die one way or another. <laughs> Why not die for Jesus instead of yeah. for nothing, you know? And so, and I know that I'd have, you You put a big predator against me and give me any handheld weapon you want. That's not a, that's not a firearm. And uh, <laughs> it's going to eat me. If I, fight it, <laughs> if I fight it real good, maybe it'll get madder and eat me more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I honestly, if I, I've often thought that if I were one of the Christians yeah. fed to the lions in, in the days of the emperors, I would just, I'd kneel and pray. Honestly, mm -hmm. this is, uh, this is my true answer. I would kneel and pray and just say, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Nice. <laughs> Amazing. The holiest answer you've gotten. Yeah. Because I, can't, because I can't imagine any weapon that I could wield because I'm not athletic. I'm 70 years old, but I can't imagine any uh, weapon I could wield, uh, wield that, that would kill uh, a strong animal. So, I just make them mad. <laughs> I'd, rather, I'd rather just bear my neck like a dog surrendering to another dog. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And I'm sure it's been educational to our viewers. It's certainly been educational to myself. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Derry can say the same. And yeah, looking forward to the next time you come around Honolulu. Yeah, I'm sure I will be eventually. Yes, sir. Now that the uh, travel safe rules are down and uh, yeah, 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 no mandates now, now there won't be the reasons I've had for avoiding it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely awesome. All right, thanks cool. so much for spending time with us, and, and yeah, have a good day. Thanks, guys, for listening and coming back once again. Come back next week as we explore the traditional view, and then mm -hmm. the week after for a Q and A. We can have fan Q and As on hell and yeah. all that good stuff. But yeah, we got. Two more weeks of the series. It'll be a good time. Yeah. Cool. All right. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Yep.